Luke 18, 18. The rich and the kingdom of God. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has home, who has left home, or wife, or brothers or sisters, or parents or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much as in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray as David comes to um, teach that you would help us listen to what he's going to say. I pray that you would um, bless his words and help us learn from you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. I was sat with a friend, and they said to me, if the decision was between living a life of singleness with God and a life of family without God, I'd rather opt for a family without God. We had met here at HTC at the back of church and immediately had sort of like gotten to know each other really well. We both had uh, faith and politics in common and just really enjoyed chatting. And of course, like during that meet and greet section, you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm David, an economist. I go to the eight and the six. And uh, I live with a person called Andrew Burrell. He's absolutely wonderful. He's actually on sound right now. Everyone just turn and wave to him. He hates being the center of attention. I will get that back later. It's good to annoy the only person who can turn off your mic. <laughs> Regret already. I'll get you back for the best man speech. So, uh, as I said, we kicked it off uh, with conversations on faith and politics, and we started regularly meeting uh, just to chat about faith. And something I noticed continually is that actually he continually reflected on singleness as um, just with sadness and a bit of despair, and actually commented on how like, his dream of family was just what he wanted. And then one day, as we were having a conversation on singleness, I, I asked him the question, if it was singleness and God, or family and no God, which would you choose? And he opted for family and no God. In Christianity, we talk about something a lot called idols. And we describe idols as things that we place before God, as more important than God. 
In the case of the friend I had a conversation with, his idol was family. And I'm sure many of us have idols, whether it's family, friends, fame. We all have them. In our passage today, the idol that the rich young ruler had, the main person we see, was wealth. And we'll be discussing quite a bit about that. Now, I think it's easy to hear the, net, like, like the title, Rich Young Ruler. And it's really easy to immediately just start judging this person. You know, you kind of picture some guy with his, like, his chest out, very wealthy, probably slightly arrogant, posh. Oh, have you had a tea today, sir? I don't know what you picture. But I know I just start judging him. Except one thing that's really interesting is that actually, at least in Mark's account of this particular story, we see a very different person from the immediate judgment we may come to. In fact, in Mark's account of the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus has just started wandering down a road. And then this rich young ruler comes up to him, falls on his knees, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, someone who is rich, young ruler, someone of significant status, he's meeting Jesus on the road, falls on his knees, a sign of huge humility and a sign of giving respect to this teacher, getting his clothes dirty, practically speaking, to ask what he is lacking and what he needs to do to get eternal life. There is a desperation here for a solution. And so before we think about the rich young ruler, actually, very squeaky, is a reflection point around, you know, we might look at him and say, well, of course he was going to go away sad because of who he was. But actually, so many of us have come here today and we have worshipped God and we have thought to ourselves, yes, I am passionate to pursue him. I want him so much. And yet that was exactly the same mindset of the rich young ruler who came to that situation and thought, this is what I want so badly. Teacher, tell me what I need to do to get eternal life. Now, we're going to look at some things that the rich young ruler said and some things that Jesus said. I'm going to see how Jesus completely blows away the expectations of this man. The thing that the rich young ruler says and how Jesus responds. The first thing we see here, or the first thing that's said by the rich young ruler, is good teacher. And Jesus' response is immediately, good. Why do you call me good? Now, I'm not sure if you ever thought about this, but that's actually a really weird response. Like, could you imagine going down to the pub and saying to your mate, oh, mate, you're so cool, and it's sort of going around and say, cool? I'm not cool. Only Ben Hayes' ripped jeans are cool. Or, uh, you know, oh, you're looking good today. Don't call me good-looking. And fill in the blank with someone good-looking in your own mind. Like, really not very good with those sorts of names. But it, in other words, it's really weird to have that sort of response. But the only time you ever really get those responses in normal life is, is if someone is either being really pedantic, like really, really pedantic, like that annoying friend you have, or alternatively, 
if you have completely missed something that is actually quite true, and your friend is pointing it out to you. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The rich young ruler comes with this mindset of some people are good and some people are bad. And immediately Jesus comes and says, actually, no, it's not like that. Only God is good and everyone else is not good. God is good and everyone else is not good. And that's important because the question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus was, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what do I need to do to be saved? And that's going to be our driving question throughout tonight. And Jesus' immediate response, which says God is good and no one else is good, immediately implies that we are not good enough. We can't measure ourselves by some rules and expect to turn out good. The rules being the religious rules of Jesus' day. And so in answer, what do we need to do to be saved? We immediately need to start forgetting rules. We need to stop measuring ourselves against them. Second thing, the man says, good teacher, and then asks, what do I need to do in order to be saved? Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Next thing, you know the commandments. Honor your mum and dad, I can't list them in order. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't murder. Now that in itself is also a really weird response for Jesus' day. And of course, none of us will get it because none of us are first century Jews. But for the average person in Jewish society, the average religious the average person in Jewish society, they would expect to go up to a religious leader and ask, what do I do in order to be saved? And the religious leader would stand there and speak out a list of rules that this particular person would need to follow. Just rule after rule after rule after rule. 613 in all. So many. Because the whole basis of Jewish custom was that actually you obeyed laws, and that was how you were saved. Now, we've already heard, God is good, we are not good, and so we can't expect to be saved through the rules. But what you also see here is Jesus' disregard for them. I mean, he lists five rather than the 613 you'd have expected the other Pharisees to give. A simple five. In other words... Jesus has what seems to be an almost a slight disregard for the rules in this particular place, which points to the fact that maybe he thinks something else is far more important. So maybe we should too. So the answer to the question, what do we need to do in order to be saved? We already know from these first two lines, we can lose our sense that the rules will allow us to be saved, because one, we're not good enough, and two, Jesus thinks there's something else which is more important. Now, next thing we move to is to do with the wealth. See, the rich ruler then says, I've kept all these commands since I was a boy. And Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you have 
and give it to the poor. We're going to focus on the wealth aspect here. We're going to discuss wealth, and then we're going to come back and discuss the greatest significance of what Jesus said here. But firstly, wealth. Actually, when you look through the Bible, one thing that's really interesting is how much wealth is talked about. If you're here for any other of these sermons today, you'd have heard Jamie discuss his infographic Bible and how Jesus taught about and how this, sorry, this infographic Bible lists the things that Jesus taught about from like most common to least common. And you have your top three, which are all things about faith. And then I think his fourth was money. Money was the first major topic, actually, after those top three. And it was before things like healing. Jesus has a lot to say about money. And in fact, actually, in the Bible, we see money talked about in the sense that it is evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. We hear Jesus in another part of the Bible talk about how actually as disciples of Jesus, we cannot follow both mammon, money, and God. So we immediately have this mindset that actually money does not help us in our relationship with God. And it might be worth just, well, having to think about why this is. Now, I'm an economist, and so you're going to have a slight history lesson on where money comes from. Okay. I want you to picture caveman number one. Hello, I have... I don't know why I went slightly Scottish there. (laughs) I have sheep. You have wheat. Let's trade. And you exchange things. And eventually, as society progresses, like, you start carrying around nuggets of gold, and you say, Ah, you have sheep. I buy your sheep for my gold. And eventually, then, you, you leave the gold in a bank, and the bank writes you an IOU statement. IOU, one nugget of gold. And then you start exchanging these. And to amass wealth, therefore, is to amass this money, to amass these IOUs. The, the attitude we have when we go into a shop is, when I buy something from you, and I give you that money, you're providing me that service because you owe me as it says on this note. And so, to live in a framework of wealth is to go around and say, I want to buy this. You owe me this. You owe me this. You owe me this. You owe me this. And this is a problem with a mindset of faith because we then look at God and have to say, I owe you. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. But when it comes to faith, actually, we fall short. And we have to have a mindset of dependence. Let's, another way of phrasing it, is you could picture money as allowing you to do things. No, you want to have a good time with your family, I can do this. You want to go on a holiday, I can pay for it. You want to do any number of things, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And yet, in terms of faith and salvation and God, it is I can't do it. And so this money mindset, it gives us the illusion that we are not dependent on God. That actually that people owe us and that we can do everything for ourselves. And and actually, if you were here for the last two weeks, you hear about how dependence is so important. You had James White talking 
about the prayer in the temple. And actually, there was a man who thought he was self-sufficient and a man who thought he wasn't self-sufficient. There was a man who thought he wasn't self-sufficient, who thought he was dependent, who needed to know he was, who thought he was not enough. It was him, the person who needed to depend on God, who Jesus looked on and said, salvation has come to him. You had the talk last week where Jess Lane was talking about us being children and how we needed to be defenseless and dependent. And so we come to this passage, and, which is on salvation, and we see this train of dependence and defenselessness. And we recognize that money actually doesn't support either of those things. And so, squeaky chair again. And so the question is, what can we do in this situation? Because Jesus then goes on to say, actually, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for the camel to enter the eye of a needle. Now, there are like three different interpretations of like the camel in the eye of a needle. It, is, it can literally be a camel going through the eye of a needle. And then there are some theologians who will argue that there is a particular gate in Jerusalem which is called the needle gate. And in order for the camel to get through, it has to have all its things thrown off its back. It must kneel and then go through. And the third option, where actually some theologians think camel refers to a camel's hair and you're trying to get it through a needle, except a camel's hair is really, really thick. But the point is, regardless of whichever metaphor you choose, the point is not that you can get you can be saved with riches if you try really, really hard. It's not that at all. The point is, is that it is impossible. You know, a camel through the eye of a needle. Stick this building in a snow globe. It's just not possible. And so that, of course, raises a concern for us as people of the West we're actually, on the whole, are very wealthy. Half the world lives on less than five pounds a day. And I enjoyed reading an article the other day about like, self-improvement, et cetera, et cetera, and how it made the comment that actually, to even be able to read something online puts you in the richest half of the world's population. So the question is, how do we, in terms of wealth, how do we make ourselves dependent on God? The obvious solution, which Jesus does prescribe in some circumstances, but not in the majority, is actually what he says to the rich young ruler. Give away all you have and sell to the poor. And actually, you see this multiple times in Scripture. For example, two 72 disciples, as they're going out to spread Jesus' word. And also in this particular passage here today. And the idea is that actually they are giving away everything and therefore able to be fully dependent on God. And to understand that, I suppose I would just give the example of my parents. For the last 25 years, they have lived without a salary, without a wage, on the basis of faith, because that's what they believe God has called them to do. And the organization and the values that they are a part of encourages complete dependence on God, to such an extreme that they follow in the tradition of missionaries like Hudson Taylor or C.T. Studd, 
whereby you don't ask people for money. Because actually, to be fully dependent means that when you need money, you just simply come to God in prayer. And over the last 25 years, they have been provided for. And as a child coming out of that situation, I'm then left with the attitude that actually all I have has been given to me. I don't deserve anything that I have or anything that I have ever been given. It is all, because it has quite simply all been given to me. I haven't earned any of it. And that is the power of dependence, the power of giving away all your wealth, because suddenly you depend on God and you recognize how much he has given you. But of course, there's a tension between actually giving away all our wealth and this wisdom around using wealth wisely. And so how do we, as people who probably need to save, need to save up for a house, things like that, how do we deal with the issue of wealth and learning to be dependent? And I suppose the argument that I make is that actually, that we don't necessarily need to give away all our wealth. We need to recognize that our wealth was never really ours to give away. In other words, our wealth is actually fundamentally all from God. And when we decide to follow God, we need to commit to saying that actually God, everything in my bank account, everything that I possess is yours, and I will use it how you see fit. Again, an incredibly powerful thing because it means that wealth doesn't necessarily control you anymore. And it changes your attitude on it. So we have this broad overarching question. What do I need to do to be saved? We've seen Jesus' response, why do you call me good? Which leads us to the conclusion, none of us are good enough. We have Jesus talking, almost like disregarding the rules. Which leads us to the conclusion that actually it's not there. We can lose our sense that the rules are actually how we're going to get salvation. And we've talked about wealth and how actually in order to get to God, we need to treat all our wealth as though it is his. We need to lose our riches in order to be saved. But actually, going back to that statement, give away all you have, there's actually something bigger going on there. You see, immediately before that, in the book of Mark, it records something that Jesus did, which it doesn't record in the other accounts of this particular story. It says Jesus looked at the man and he loved him. We hear earlier in the Bible about how, though we as humans perceive from the outside, God looks at our hearts. And so here, Jesus is looking at this man's heart and is is trying to perceive what is it that is the idol in this person's life? What is it that is holding him back from following me? And so, yes, this story is about wealth. But it's about wealth because the man in this story had an idol that is wealth. A story with David at the center, where Jesus was looking at me and I was asking the question about what I must do to be saved, we'd probably have the idols of family or not coming across as a failure, my pride. And for each of us, it would be a different thing. I don't know what it is for you. 
But that, of course, then brings in a new dynamic because we've talked about how in order to be saved we need to lose our rules and lose our riches. But actually, here Jesus, if he was meeting us, he would ask us to lose the thing of greatest value. A parallel in the Bible is the story of Abraham. God promises a son to Abraham. It is to be Abraham's his legacy to the world, the way he has an impact. And yet, actually, God asks Abraham to give up his most precious thing, his son, for God. And Abraham goes out to do it. Now, uh, God intervenes last moment, and Isaac doesn't die. But still, that question was there. And so, we need to recognize that God is not simply asking us to give our all to him in terms of wealth, but to give our all to him in terms of the most valuable things in our life. To give our all to him in all of our lives. We surrender. We don't just lose our roles. We don't just lose our riches, but we lose our lives in pursuit of following Jesus. You see... It's, it's, I think, sorry. In the passage here, Jesus makes a comment that we are to give up our all. And actually for us to give up our all, it is immensely difficult and basically impossible. In the sense that we will never be perfect and never be fully right. But Jesus responds to that and he says, you know what, yes it is impossible but man but all things are possible with God. Because actually, even though we have sinned and even though we are broken, Jesus came down to earth to die for us, to die for our sins, that we might know him and to pay the price for the things that we have done wrong. And his invitation is for us to follow him, that we might know him and that we might be saved. And that is how we are saved. Not by following some legalistic set of rules. Not by having a wealth that says, you owe me, God. Ultimately, not even by just trying to surrender as many parts of our lives as possible, but by recognizing who Jesus is and choosing to accept his sacrifice for us. And also, therefore, recognizing that we are called as people who accept his sacrifice to then follow him. And Jesus again and again talks about the cost of that. He says, those who lose their their lives will find it. And he talks about those who follow me must take up their cross to follow me. And we see this also in church history. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Or C.T. Studd, the great missionary, said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. We are called to give up everything. And so my question to you today is simply, are you willing to give your all for Jesus? Are you willing to surrender everything that you might know him and his joy, and his life to the full. 
Jesus is an incredible person. He healed the sick, gave the blind men sight. He touched people who would never be touched by anyone else. And if you read his story and engage with him, I, I would struggle to believe it if you said you didn't fall in love with him. He's worth giving up everything for. We're going to have uh, three different responses tonight. One is that if you want to come forward for prayer during worship, please do. Come forward for anything. We are a church who believes in prayer. Secondly, if there is a part of your life which you feel you are holding back from God, we're going to move the cross to just here in front of the pews. And I would encourage you to come forward, just physically touch the cross as a sign of surrendering to Jesus and just say a short prayer, laying down that part of your life which you're holding on to and go back. And finally, if you have never believed in Jesus before or never met him and you want to find out what this life is, this life in all the full, because yes, there is a high cost, but there is a great reward of knowing him. And I would encourage you also to come forward. There will be people at the front to pray with, and any of them will be happy to pray with you and to help you talk through what it means to accept Jesus as your saviour.